We're going to read a few short passages from Isaiah before we get to Luke's gospel. Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 61, the first two verses. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And now from Luke 7, I'm just tacking on a little bit for more context, uh, starting at verse 16. After Jesus heals, uh, brings back to life a young man, uh, the people are all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who, had, who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Expectations are powerful. They shape our perceptions of an experience. Let me share two quick illustrations. The way we perceive a ringing telephone depends on who we expect to be on the other end. We can be excited to pick up if we're expecting a loved one to call us. We'll be annoyed if we expect it to be a stranger offering us a sale on windows, doors, or duct cleaning. 
Or consider a family Thanksgiving buffet dinner many years ago. Uncle John took a spoonful of unlabeled red sauce to accompany two slices of turkey breast. He expected a tart accompaniment to his meat and thoroughly enjoyed the traditional meal. Six-year-old me was excited to dish up my own plate for the first time. When I spotted the red sauce, I took three scoops because you guessed it, I expected it to be red jello with fruit. When I sat down to eat and began by putting a big spoonful of cranberry sauce in my mouth, I did not thoroughly enjoy it. <laughs> Expectations are powerful. They have such a big impact on how we experience life that Alexander Pope coined this sarcastic beatitude. Blessed are those who expect nothing, for they will never be disappointed. But can we expect nothing? After all, expectations are one of the ways people express hope, and no one can live without hope. Even more so, expectation with a capital E is the foundation of the story of redemption. Starting with the word God, <clears throat> God spoke to the serpent about crushing his head through the seed of the woman, we hear covenant promises echoed to Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. Each generation brought the people of Israel closer to their rescue through the one who was to come, the Messiah. Those expectations seemed to be dashed when the 12 tribes were divided and crushed, when the temple was destroyed, and when the people were sent into various forms of exile. And yet, the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi spoke even louder at this time, casting a vision, an expectation that one day one would arrive, saying, here I am, I have come, it is written about me in the scroll. Isaiah looks at the coming one from different angles, giving details about his birth, his appearance, his miraculous works, and his sufferings. We read just two excerpts from Isaiah's prophecy this morning. The people of Judea and Galilee were familiar with this background knowledge when both John the baptizer and Jesus of Nazareth came on the scene. As these two men carried out their separate but related ministries, the unspoken and sometimes spoken question on everyone's mind was, is he the one? The Gospels record everyday citizens sharing their responses to this question as it pertained to Jesus. They were divided about him. And I'm asked, I've asked some people in the congregation to read a few of these statements that we overhear about Jesus in the Gospels. Will he do more miraculous signs than this man? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Aren't we right in saying you are Samaria and demon possessed? These are not the saying of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? 
how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's seed and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? A great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Expectations are powerful. They shape the perceptions of ordinary people of Galilee and Judea as they assessed whether Jesus was trustworthy or not. But ordinary folks were not the only ones paying attention. There were also priests and Levites from, dispatched from Jerusalem to find out what was going on along the Jordan River. Expectations filled the air. Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. John is asked if he is the Messiah, if he is Elijah, if he is the prophet, and he says no to each of these titles. And then John ramps up the expectations with this statement. Among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The teachers of the law, scribes, Pharisees and Sadducees all had expectations of the Messiah. Some were definitely based on scripture, but some were based on national interests and agendas. They each expected the Messiah to prioritize the values they held dear. The law, freedom from Roman oppression, and preserving their existing wealth and status. Once Jesus begins teaching and performing miracles, representatives of the religious community be, seem to be on hand all the time, assessing if this uneducated rabbi from backwoods Galilee met the messianic expectations. After Jesus heals a man born blind, as recorded in John's gospel, the Pharisees hold a thorough inquiry. They interview the man who is healed. They hear from witnesses, and they also confer with the man's parents. There seems to be some division, and some are sure this cannot be the Messiah because he heals on the Sabbath. But others say, how can a sinner do such miracles? Jesus expresses his dismay with Israel's teachers. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me and have life. The expectations of the religious leaders of Jesus' day were powerful and mistaken. At the Feast of Hanukkah, some of them confront Jesus at the temple directly. If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And when he points to his miracles, they are not satisfied. They continue to debate and try to seize him. And now we come to John the baptizer. Finally, you might be thinking. Uh, John the baptizer has a few advantages over the everyday folks and the religious leaders in grasping the identity of Jesus. He was called by God to be the voice, calling out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord, the Messiah. God told him that the person on whom a dove would land was the chosen Messiah. And so when Jesus comes to his, 
cousin John for baptism, this dramatic sign is realized. And we touched on that last Sunday. John is sure, and he tells those in earshot that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I testify that this is the Son of God. John's descriptors of the Messiah shows that he knows Jesus' destiny is to become a sacrifice on behalf of the people, and that there's an intimate relationship between Jesus and the Father. John is content to let any of his own disciples go over to Jesus. He humbly says, he must become greater, I must become less. At the same time, John continues a ministry that calls people to repentance. Even people like Herod the Tetrarch, who rules over both Galilee and some territory to the east of the Jordan River. Herod didn't like to be told to repent of his adultery, so he had this odd prophet arrested and taken to the prison at his palace fortress of Machaerus, east of the Dead Sea. And this is where John is when he hears about Jesus' ongoing ministry described in our passage today. His loyal followers, who appear to still be baptizing and carrying on his work, hear about the words and deeds of Jesus of Nazareth. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. We don't know the tone with which John's disciples relayed this information to John. They may not have had the same humble attitude as John and may have considered Jesus a rival. But even so, I wonder if this is what John had expected. He had been stopped from fulfilling the mission by being imprisoned. It's unclear if John expected Jesus to become popular through a healing tour, since that wasn't the key idea he announced about the Messiah. Where was the judgment? Where was the dividing of the wheat from the chaff and the destruction the fiery destruction of that wicked chaff. Where was all this headed? John may have felt he had no control of outcomes. So we read the question John brings to Jesus via two messengers. Messengers who had to come a very long way and may have had a challenge finding Jesus who seemed to be always on the move. They ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And we wonder to ourselves, doesn't John know the answer? Can't he remember the sign of the dove that confirmed he was the Messiah? John was the voice, the friend of the bridegroom. How can he forget all this? But if we read, are you the one, as an academic question, we are missing the point. As commentators Walvoort and Zook point out, this is a question of the heart. We have a discouraged prophet here who, like the original Elijah, has come to the lowest point in his life. He's really asking, did I get this wrong? A Russian theologian, Sergius Bulkakov, goes one step further. He hears from John's mouth the most tragic question that ever resounded in the human soul. He recognizes in John's very human question his personal Gethsemane before the Golgotha to come. 
John knows his death is imminent. Mark's gospel tells us Herod would go and listen to his prisoner John with a kind of strange fascination, but that his new wife advocated for John's execution. In a legal system based on the whims of the powerful, it was only a matter of time before John would exit his dark prison and be led to his death. And so John needed to know if his expectation had been misplaced. How does Jesus respond? There is no simple yes or no, because that has never been the way of a rabbi. Plus, John needs an assurance beyond words, logic, or argument. Jesus, at that very time, demonstrates his ministry to the disciples of John. He heals people, casts out demons, gives sight to the blind. John will hear from eyewitnesses and not from watered-down, second-hand rumors. When Jesus is finished performing these miracles, he uses words that echo the prophecies we read from Isaiah. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus does not shame John, but he greets him. When reciting what's happening, Jesus builds to a crescendo, ending with, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Jesus shows John that this ministry is in line with the great expectation that was heralded by a fellow prophet. And in essence, he says, don't let me become a snare. The renewal of all things is happening, even if it's not quite in the way you expected. What about us? Where does that leave us here and now? If we're honest, some of our expectations of Jesus are filtered through North American markers of success. Jesus has come to save us from our sin, but we're also pretty sure he wants us to live an easier, more comfortable life. We have unspoken wishes and expectations that he will give us that good job, that car, that Jesus will let our bid for the dream house be accepted, and that will fall into a loving relationship with minimal conflict. We know in our hearts and minds that Jesus is the one, but some of the things we've been taught to expect out of life can become our undoing. As a teenager, I was given a devotional book entitled, If God Loves Me, Why Can't I Get My Locker Open? It seems like a pretty minor thing to cause a crisis of faith, but our expectations of a smooth and easy life are ingrained from a young age, and they can take on lives of their own. When these expectations fall to the ground, how do we respond? Expectations continue to be powerful and give shape to how we perceive what happens to us and around us. Some expectations are God-given desires for harmony and longevity in relationships. When we're betrayed by someone we trust, when there's friction at home or at church, and when our loved ones suffer, we're wounded 
those wounds can also lead to a crisis of faith, like John the Baptist's question from a dark and lonely prison cell. Have I invested my life in the wrong cause? Is the mission of Jesus worth it? When John was torn apart, wondering whether his ministry was in vain, and if he'd been deluded about the Messiah's identity, he went to the source. And Jesus gently helped John get his bearings through a customized show and tell. Jesus extends the same invitation to you. You've come to the right place if you're here in person or watching the live stream. If you're daring to voice a question like, is all this stuff about Jesus really worth it? It's sure not delivering what I expected. Jesus says, come to me. Rediscover the things that Jesus is busy with. Lifting up those left behind because of disability or poverty. Bringing hope and peace. Showing tangible good news that God is renewing a broken world. Think again about the way Jesus told potential followers to count the cost rather than calculating the material benefits of being a disciple. Dig into the things that Jesus promised, like, in this world you will have trouble, but also be assured. He added, take heart, for I have overcome the world. As a university student during the faith-shaking church splits of the early 1990s, I brought my swirling doubts and questions with me each week as I sat in a wooden pew for Sunday worship. On a particular evening, the pastor was preaching on the Canons of Dort. If you don't know what that is, it's a heavy 17th century confessional statement. Seriously, what was any young adult going to get out of that service? But there were two memorable things, actually. First, I was given a fresh image of Jesus' ministry. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus understands our frailties and our doubts. He knows our expectations are going to clash with reality. He receives us in our honest wrestling. He does not look at us as useless or pathetic, even when we might see ourselves in that way. And the second thing was a 200-year-old hymn that seemed addressed right to me. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with you, O oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God, I will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. There were two more verses, but by that time I was crying, and I couldn't get the words out. 
We are privileged to live on the other side of John's agonized question. God's excellent word has given us ample evidence that Jesus is our only comfort in life and in death. We have the resurrection testimony of the women who saw the grave was empty. We have the declarations of the apostles who were painfully aware of the unexpected twists of this life. Conflict, physical pain, betrayal, loss, misunderstanding, personal attack, and the reminder to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And we also have something deeper than words, logic, or argument, the communion table that we've been invited to partake in this very day. Expectations are powerful. But even the disappointment and disorientation that comes from shattered expectations can never separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who was to come. He addressed John the Baptist's question without a lecture, and he gently gave him what he needed to take the next step in hope. Will you let him do the same for you? Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, in the deep places of our hearts, where our expectations of life and of you have been shattered, give us new hope. Give us assurance through your word, through communion, and through baptism that we belong to you and that you are the one, the only one who can give us true peace and the strength to go on. Thank you for your boundless grace that covers all our broken ways. Amen.